Welcome back, everyone. This is Jose Nino here, and I'm here again with the great Keith Preston to chat about certain developments in current affairs. Before we start, just tell my audience a little bit about yourself. You've been here multiple times, but perhaps there are some new listeners that would like to get a glimpse of the work you've done recently. Well, I've been involved in dissident politics for about 35 years, and I've been involved with a range of different tendencies over time, the left and the right. I suppose if there's any one consistency through my uh, years of activism or writing, it would be opposition to aggressive warfare. I've published about half a dozen books, uh, maybe about uh, probably, well, I've got several hundred essays, if you count everything that's available just on blogs and websites and things like that. But I've uh, contributed to quite a few other compilations, some of Paul Gottfried's compilations, some of Troy Southgate's compilations. And I've been a, a speaker at various events uh, You know, over time. Uh, for a while, I was associated with the alt-right. I've been associated with libertarians. I've been associated with the left at times. Uh, I consider myself a philosophical anarchist. Uh, if you want to know more about that, you can go to uh, the website that I'm the main editor of, which is attackthesystem.com, just like it sounds, attackthesystem.com. I've also been a professor of uh, social sciences, uh, and I've uh, been a freelance writer and journalist at various times as well. Great stuff. Now, speaking of war... Because there's always a perennial topic in a political system that is dominated by neoconservative and neoliberal interventionists. What do you make of the Israel-Hamas conflict specifically? What do you think is going to happen in terms of potential escalation? And where do you think American public opinion is heading with respect to Israel and its so-called special relationship with the U.S. government? Well, everything associated with that situation has been a colossal blunder. First of all, uh, as far as the Hamas attacks on October 7th, we have to understand that they did not happen in a vacuum. We're talking about a struggle that's been going on for at least 75 years, if, if not longer. Uh, and a lot of people have a, a misinformed view of what the conflict uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians are. Many people think that this is two countries that are fighting each other over a territorial dispute. And that's not the case. The government of Israel rules all of what might be called greater Israel. And that is Israel proper. That is the territory that is considered the nation of Israel. And since 1967, Israel has ruled over Gaza, uh, East Jerusalem, and the West Bank as well. Uh, those regions were uh, seized during the 1967 war. Uh, Gaza was seized from Egypt, West Bank, from Jordan. So the Palestinian people, uh, there's about 7.2, 7.3 million of them spread out over these several territories. There's also roughly the same number of people that are considered Israelis. So you have a system that in very, uh, in many ways is, a, is an anachronism. You, in the sense that you have half the population of greater Israel 
being a socially, politically, legally, and culturally privileged caste, not class, caste. And the uh, you have another half of the population that is a subordinated and excluded caste. As far as uh, things from the, the past we can compare it to, uh, one example would be the uh, Hindu caste system and the, with the Palestinians uh, playing the role of the Dalits. Uh, another example might be the, the role of blacks in the former uh, apartheid system of South Africa and also the system of Jim Crow segregation that existed in the American South prior to the civil rights era. Now, I would say that the situation with the Palestinians is worse. Uh, I, I'd say it's worse than Jim Crow. It's worse than apartheid. Arguably, it's worse than the caste system, although that's so antiquated. It's really and it's so, you know, so old, it's hard to make a comparison. But that's the kind of society that they have in Israel. It's often said by neocons and, and others, Israel apologists, that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. And that's simply not the case. Israel is a theocratic ethno-state, where Judaism is the state religion. It is, Israel is specifically established to be a Jewish ethno-state. People of Jewish religion and ethnic lineage are considered uh, a specially privileged class of people in Israel, even over and above other people who are actually Israeli citizens. Uh, Israel does have non-Jews that are citizens. Yeah, there are Palestinian Arabs that are citizens, and other, there are Christian Arabs that are citizens, there are Israeli Arabs, but only people who are Jewish, either by ethnic lineage or by religious affiliation, are, are considered uh, people who have full, you know, the, the maximum degree of rights afforded by the state in Israel. So that's the kind of system that Israel is. Now, Gaza is, uh, as some people have called it, an open air prison. Now, what that means is that it's a place that the Palestinians are confined to. Uh, there's about 2.3 million people confined to this very narrow uh, strip of land on the Mediterranean coast in the southwestern part of Israel. It's one of the most densely populated places in the world. And the Palestinians are subject to a blockade by Israel. Anything that is shipped into or delivered to Israel is subject to inspection by the Israeli government itself. And to the point that the government of Israel has rationed food, uh, the goal of Israel was to uh, ration food so that the Palestinians in Gaza were essentially put on a starvation diet. That is, they wanted to keep the Palestinians barely above starvation in, you know, in terms of food consumption. Now, all of this is before the current war. Uh, Israel also has a practice called mowing the lawn, which means that every few years, Israel would simply go and bomb Gaza uh, to make sure that there was no uh, effort at economic development in the region, that there was no effort at uh, uh, any, certainly any kind of political resistance as well. So that's the kind of society that we're dealing with. Uh, that's, that's the reality for the Palestinians uh, who, in Gaza. Now, the uh, October 7th attacks uh, were carried out by Hamas. Hamas is an Islamist group. It's a spinoff from the Muslim Brotherhood. 
And it was initially uh, cultivated by Israel as a, a type of, Israel wanted to use Hamas as a type of controlled opposition because previously the leading Palestinian resistance group was the PLO, which is a, a Palestine liberation organization, which is a secular Arabist party. It's not an Islamist group. And Israel wanted to divide and conquer the Palestinian resistance by cultivating an Islamist alternative to the secular PLO. And the goal was to have exactly what they have now, where the PLO's political wing, Fatah, operates uh, as the you know, the quizzling government of the West Bank. And then Hamas, you know, de facto uh, controls Gaza. And, you know, as, as we know, Hamas carried out an attack on Israel in, in, on October the 7th. There, I, I think that some of the official claims about what happened that day are dis- debatable, at least. Uh, I know Max Blumenthal, he's a, a, a Jewish-American journalist. He's lived in Israel and he's done a lot of investigative reporting, uh, claiming that you know the official narrative where Hamas simply sweeps in and just starts massacring people at random has been exaggerated. I mean, yeah, there were there were certainly murders carried out by Hamas, some horrific ones, uh, but it, but it appears that a lot of the people that were killed that day were members of the IDF that were engaged in combat with Hamas. Uh, initially, Hamas fighters that were killed in that attack were counted among the Israeli dead. Now, they've since rolled that back. Uh, also, there's evidence that a, quite a few Israelis were killed by friendly fire because they were using very powerful weapons. And, and you know, there were Israeli uh, weapons that uh, blew up houses and, and, and killed uh, Jewish people inside some of these places. This is more controversial, but Israel has a military doctrine called the the Hannibal Directive, yeah, that was established in 1986. It was formally repealed in 1993, but it's widely believed that they still practice this informally. The Hannibal Directive is basically something where the Israelis had a policy that before they would allow any of their soldiers or civilians to be taken hostage, they would simply kill them. Meaning if you see somebody, you know, if you see a, a rival group, Hamas, Hezbollah, you know, Islamic Jihad, uh, Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, you know, whomever, if you see one of these groups running off with an Israeli, well, you just shoot at the hostage and kill the hostage. And that way, you don't have to worry about negotiating to get the hostage back from whoever it is you're fighting with. So it's been, I don't know that this, is, this has been proven, but it's been speculated that at least some Israelis killed on October 7th may have been victims of the Hannibal Directive. Uh, and then that the case Real for that quick. is... The naming of this directive, is this derived from the Punic Wars by chance? Yeah, it's 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 named after Hannibal, the ancient yeah. Carthaginian yeah. general Hannibal. And Hannibal was a, a, a general from Carthage during the Punic Wars who committed suicide rather than be captured. And that's that you know, and that's that's why they named it this. They call it the Hannibal Directive, named after General Han- Hannibal from antiquity. If I'm not mistaken, didn't the Romans have like a similar policy as well during the Punic Wars? Whenever a major like functionary or a soldier was taken prisoner, like the they well, it was like I think it went along the lines that like the the Roman in question would say like I don't want to be swapped in a prisoner ransom. Like I'd rather they just like kill me or whatever. 
Well, many, I don't know specifically about the Romans, but many armies historically have had policies like that or, or norms like that, where uh, the Japanese, for example, during World War II, uh, their, in their ideology, it was considered dishonorable to be taken prisoner. You know, you, you're supposed to commit suicide if you're on the verge of being taken prisoner. Uh, so that this is not uncommon. It's, it's not that what Israel's Hannibal directive policy is something that's historically unique. Now, it's not the norm you know, that American and, and, and most Western countries are familiar with, but there's plenty of historical precedent for this. Yeah, I want to go back to your point about Israel, like the nature of the Israeli state, because I've argued that in the early days of like the uh, of the establishment of the Israeli state, up until the rise of Likud, that Israel could kind of pass off being this type of like liberal Jewish democracy that was formed in the mold of like the liberal nationalist movements of the 19th century, like in Europe, like that. That's like the Theodore Herzl style movement that founded Israel. However, I think with the advent and the arrival of the Likud party and just the overall demographic shift that you've seen with the rise of Misrahim Jews and Sephardic Jews becoming more prominent. And then the influx of Soviet Jews, especially like Russian Jews, Israeli politics has gone way to the hard right to the point where I think that any types of like trappings of it being a secular state are just going out the window and it's just going to become formalized. But in reality, I do agree with you that in many respects, Israel um, is like the de facto Jewish state, both in terms of the ethnic character and religious character. And do you think that this is just going to become like formalized given the ongoing trends in Israeli demographics? Well, Israel was always a state that reserved certain privileges for Jews. It, it was never a Western-style liberal democracy where all religions and ethnic groups are considered to be legally equal. For example, it's still against the law, I believe, for people of different faiths to marry in, in uh, Israel. Uh, I don't think that Christians and Jews can marry or Jews and Muslims can marry. You know, similar to the anti-miscegenation laws that existed in the United States prior to the 1960s. Also, you have the right of return. Like any person who is considered Jewish, according to the laws of Israel, can simply go live in Israel. Uh, you know, no questions asked, more or less. I think I, I'm not sure what the specific requirements are as far as ethnic lineage, but you know, you you can be an atheist, but if you come from a Jewish eth ethnocultural heritage, um, you know, like your your parent, your 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 great uh, grandparents or great grandparents or something were from Eastern Europe, uh, then you can you're considered Jewish, so you can go to Jew to Israel and live in Israel. Uh, also, you can convert to Judaism and go live in Israel. For example, Ivanka Trump is a convert to Judaism. So she could go live in Israel if she wanted to and be considered an Israeli citizen. So there's always been, and, and of course, no no other ethnic group has any kind of rights like that in, in Israel, certainly not Palestinians, including there were Palestinians who were exiled after the 1948 Nakba, which was an eth act of ethnic cleansing, which hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were uh, ethnically cleansed when Israel was established. Uh, even even the you know the surviving ones, the ones who are now very old, you know, they'd probably be in their eighties or something now. But uh, or their children or, or grandchildren or great grandchildren, uh, many of them do not have right of return to Israel. 
So Israel has always pri- you know, had these this system of privilege for Jews. And, and that, there's other things, too. Uh, for example, uh, I, I, it used to be the law. I'm not sure if, if it still is. But they had a policy where any Jew charged with a crime anywhere in the world could seek refuge in Israel. And there have actually been cases of, you know, people, uh, you know, ethnic Jews being arrested for things like pedophilia who would go and escape to Israel and go live in Israel. Yeah, big time. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, what country in the world has laws like that? You know, it, it's like um, so that, you know, Israel's always had this bizarre feature. Now, it is true that there are aspects of Israel that are similar to a Western liberal democracy. They have a parliament. They have multiple parties. They have elections. Um, although voting rights are limited only to Israeli citizens, which doesn't include half the people that are ruled over by, by um, Israel proper, uh, by the Israeli government. So that has to be considered. You know, they have uh, an independent media in fact, at times there's even more debates about is- Israeli uh, internal policy in the Israeli media than there is in the American media. I mean, yeah, the, big time. Yeah, the American media is often to the right of the Israeli media. Like if you read, uh, you know, let's say Haaretz, which is one of the more liberal mainstream Israeli papers, and compare that with just mainstream American media, you know, uh, the American media is often more to the right of the, of the Israeli media. Now, also, Israel, as you said, you're talking about the Likud party. The Likud is a, is a right-wing ethnic supremacist party. In common European language, they, they could be considered fascist or you know, ethno-supremacist or something. Uh, and they're also aligned with a coalition of extremist religious parties. You know, These, these are people who believe things like uh, Israel is entitled to the entire region of the Middle East that they consider to be the ancient Solomonic Empire. Uh, if listeners want to think back to their Sunday school, you know, in the Bible, uh, there's this, this, the description of this uh, ancient uh, Hebrew empire that was uh, established when the prophet Samuel anointed Saul as the first Hebrew king, and then uh, and King David came along. He was the son of uh, Saul, and then there was Solomon, and Solomon supposedly established this very vast uh, Hebrew empire uh, that they say run, supposedly it, it existed between the Nile River and the, it's either the Tigris or the Euphrates, but basically between Iraq and Northern Egypt is, is what they, you know, and there, there are literally he, uh, Jewish extremists in Israel who say that all of that land rightfully yeah. belongs to. Yeah, each of our Ben Gavir, those types. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, now, whether you believe that the Solomonic Empire is literal history or whether you believe it's simply legend, there's no historical evidence for it outside the Bible. But he, that's uh, that's up to the listener, obviously, to decide for themselves. But um, um, but that, there are, some of these uh, Jewish extremist parties do believe that, like Ben Gavir, you know, um, and that is been a central thrust of Likud's foreign policy. You know, what Likud wants to do in Gaza is they want to ethnically cleanse the Palestinian people from the Gaza Strip. Uh, that's why they're bombing them. Like, if you, if you look at what uh, Israel has been doing since October 7th, they started off bombing in, in northern Gaza, and they told all the Palestinians, well, just move south. 
Uh, and then after the Palestinians started moving south, then they started ba- bombing in southern Gaza as well. Uh, the obvious purpose behind that is to force the Palestinians eventually into Sinai. I mean, they basically want to herd them into Egypt and force them to live in tent cities in the Sinai desert. That's the goal. Uh, and then after that's done, they want to repopulate Gaza with uh, Jewish Israeli settlements like they're doing in the West Bank. I mean, they basically ethnically cleansed half the West Bank now with Israeli settlements, which are illegal under international law to the degree international law means anything. And they're trying to do that in Gaza as well. That's I think that's the next goal uh, once the Palestinians have been ethnically cleansed. And I think the holy grail for Israel is um, off the Gaza coast in the Mediterranean is a rich deposit of petroleum and natural gas. Uh, and you know, so I think certainly Israel wants access to the energy wealth that's in the Mediterranean off the Gaza coast. So, and then of course they want to annex Gaza as part of Greater Israel uh, as part of this ongoing expansionist uh, program, along with the West Bank, along with. East Jerusalem, along with Golan Heights, and, and and on and on. So you know, is, I mean, this is basically Lebensraum for Jews is, is what it amounts to. That's essentially Israel's. Well, it's it's Likud's foreign policy. Yeah, that's essentially what it's all about. And I've been arguing this for years, much to my um, annoyance, because a lot of people, especially like given my background in the right-wing political space, they just gobble up this nonsensical propaganda. And I think it's a, like part of like a, a really clever marketing strategy if you think about it, because people like Netanyahu, they will talk about liberal democracy, all, all this like existential struggle in between Hamas and Israel and frame it in very like pro-Western terms and use like pro-Western talking points that are ver- that can like appeal to Western audiences. But when you saw him give that yeah, speech, well, about- that's, that's intended solely for our consumption. Yeah. The Amalek speech on yeah. the other hand was clearly for all like the mouth breathers there. And that's really the true nature of the Israeli state as Netanyahu pretty much outlined in that um, Amalek speech, because to me, that is the ethos and the embodiment of what Israel stands for, really. Well, it, yeah, it really is. You know, Israel will come up with these talking points, or pro-Israel propagandists will come up with these talking points that are intended for consumption by Western audiences. Like the listeners may recognize that whenever you see spokespeople for Israel on American television, they often speak perfect American English. Uh, you know, they're often you know blue-eyed, blonde. European-looking people, and some of them actually have lived in the United States. Benjamin Netanyahu, for example, uh, grew up in Philadelphia. He graduated from high school in Philadelphia. So Israel tries to present themselves to the West as, as you know, just another Western liberal democracy, and they'll talk. And, and you see pro-Israel people talking about this. You know, they'll talk about, well, Israel is the only place in the in, in the Middle East where women have rights or where gays have rights or where they have you know where they ha- they can vote or and all of these kinds of things um which isn't entirely true for example they, they don't have gay marriage in in uh, Israel now with you know, with the for or against gay marriage is another issue but but though Israel is not as liberal as the West about these kinds of things but 
they'll talk about, well, you know, one, one thing I've heard a lot lately is people talking about, well, uh, Hamas is anti-gay because they're, they're Muslim or because, uh, or they'll talk about how in Gaza, alcohol is against the law because it's, a, it's an Islamic society. You know, as if bombs don't fall on gay people as well as straight people, you know, as if as if bombs don't fall on 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 non drinkers as well or drinkers as well as non drinkers. You know, it, it's uh, it, it, I mean, it's just really absurd. And, and as we were talking about, all of that is intended for consumption for Western audiences when the leadership of Israel and, and not just members of the of the government, but, you know, members of the Israeli media, if you watch clips of what. Is discussed in Israeli in the right wing Israeli media, like their equivalent of something like Fox News or something like that. Uh, I mean, they sound like something out of the Third Reich. You know, I mean, they're talking about they talk about how Palestinians are subhuman vermin, you know, human trash. I mean, they sound like you know the the Nazis talking about Jews and, and Roma and, and and Slavs and and all of the groups that they had you know animus for. Uh, and that's just common language in the Israeli media. It's common language in the uh, speeches that are given by cabinet members uh, in Israel. Uh, you know, one guy in the cabinet, uh, I forget which one, actually suggested the possibility of using a nuclear weapon on Gaza. Uh, so, and then, of course, you mentioned the, um, the, the Amalekite speech. Um, you know, in, in the Bible, uh, in the early parts of the Old Testament, like in the book of Joshua, Judges, some of those, you have all of these stories about the Hebrews or Israelites, as they're called in the Bible, getting into skirmishes with all of these surrounding ethno cultures. The Amalekites are one and the Philistines and Moabites. And they always have these wild stories about, and we went out and slayed, you know, 300,000 Philistines or something. And, uh, Again, there's no actual evidence from from his historical research that these stories are true. You know, many people believe them as a as a matter of you know, faith, or tradition, or doctrine, or or, or you know church affiliation, or uh, and that's fine. I mean, that's their business. But uh, yeah, they're trying. The, the modern Israeli state is trying to compare themselves to the ancient Israelites and saying that they're at war with all of these surrounding you know, heathen cultures and things like that. Yeah, although the interesting thing is, you know, like Israel is a is a religious state that privileges the Jewish religion, but many of its leaders, uh, aside from these nuts like like Ben Gavir, many of its leaders are non observant Jews. Like uh, like Benjamin Netanyahu is a non observant Jew. He's not a religious man. He gives no evidence of being one. And uh, in fact, he's often widely condemned by the Orthodox. Some of the most anti Zionist, anti Israel people you will ever meet are of these ultra Orthodox. Uh, Torah Jews that uh, view Israel as blasphemy because in their theology, uh, there can be no Israel until the Messiah comes. So if the Messiah is not here and you're trying to create Israel on your own, then you're usurping God's prerogatives. Now, that's just you know, their theological view. But there's a, you know, there are many Jews and very religious, very conservative Jews who dissent from uh, the Zionism because of this. Yeah, I mean— Look at like the founders of Israel too. Like the, the dominance of like the Israeli Labor Party was largely composed of very like secular and even like atheistic Jews from Eastern Europe. They were not that religious. And I've even talked to some Orthodox and ultra Orthodox Jews who've told me in the past that they actually felt more religious 
in their Jewish ghetto in New York City than in Israel, for example? Well, but yeah, you know, when Zionism started in the 19th century, it was started in the 1890s by Theodore Herzl, as you mentioned. And he was, I think he was, was he, was he Czech or German? Yeah, I think German. Yeah, some German, Austrian, I forget. Yeah. He was a Central European Jew, and, and he was um, in response to the Dreyfus affair. Uh, there was a Frenchman named Dreyfus who was accused of espionage, and many people thought unfairly or uh, you know that that case is still debated, but uh, but he Jeffress was Jewish, and it was widely believed that anti-Semitism was the yeah, reason he's why. Yeah, he's Hungarian. Yeah, he was born in Hungary. Yeah, and spent some time in Austria. But yeah, a Central European, more or less. Yeah. So um, so in response to the Dreyfus affair, Herzl established the Zionist movement, and and as you were saying, initially Zionism was not a religious movement. In fact, many of its early leaders were atheists. Many of them were communists or socialists, uh, and their influence was 19th century nationalism. You know, in, in the 19th century, you had the growth of nationalism in Europe, where you had people with, a, say, the same language or culture that wanted a state of their own. Like prior to that, Europe tended to be broken up into uh, European nationalities tended to be broken up into empires that often were multinational, like the. Austria-Hungary Empire and the old German Empire and, and some of those, some of that. But uh, but you had people that wanted to have a, a, a country, a separate country for their own nationality or their own ethno-linguistic group. And that's how we got Germany, uh, basically. That's how we got Italy. And, and Zionism was supposed to be that for Jews. And there was even a debate early on among Zionists about where the Jewish uh, national state should be. There were some that said, yeah, maybe it should be in the, the Holy Land, but there were others that said, no, maybe it would be better to have it in Africa or uh, in South America. You know, there were different ideas like that that were that were thrown out. Uh, and initially, this was considered, uh, even by Jews, to be a very fanatical, cultic, fringe movement. Uh, you, you had plenty of Jewish people that said, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't want to go live in, in, in Palestine. I've never been there before. I'm German or I'm Hungarian or I'm British. But obviously, you know, the Zionist movement grew and expanded. And, and what made it possible was the defeat of the Ottoman Turks in World War I, because for centuries, that region, Palestine, had been under the control of the Ottoman Turks. And they obviously weren't friendly to the idea of, of a Jewish ethno-religious state being, being set up in Palestine. Once the Ottoman Turks were defeated in World War I and the British got control of that area, uh, that's how uh, the Balfour Declaration, which was a provision for the eventual establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, was issued. Uh, that, that was during World War I. And of course, you know, the Zionist movement continued to grow when you had, you know, you had these uh, arms, Jewish armed struggle terrorist groups going to Palestine, uh, engaging in terrorism against the Arabs. Uh, trying to take over land from Arabs. Uh, and initially, the Zionists actually thought the British were a greater enemy. They, you had a lot of um, uh, anti-British terrorism among some of the early Zionists in Palestine. There were even Zionists that when World War II was heating up, they wanted to align with Nazi Germany because they thought that Britain was a greater enemy because they were worried Britain wasn't going to let them have a Jewish ethnostate in Palestine. So you even had Zionists trying to create an, an alliance with the 
with the uh, Third Reich, if you can believe that. Uh, and then, of course, Israel was started in 1948, uh, founded officially, you know, with the support of the United States and Britain uh, in the UN and all of that. And that's what's called the Nakba, because th- during that time you had these uh, Jewish militias that were ethnically cleansing Palestine of Arabs, uh, hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and that's been the same, the basis of the conflict that's been going on for the last 75 years. Yes, that is a history that's generally not talked about. And if I'm not mistaken as well, not to like veer totally off topic, some Zionists were actually quite sympathetic to Mussolini's Italy prior to Mussolini forging his alliance with Hitler. Because um, at that time, actually, in general, Mussolini's Italy was optically in a good state where you had people from ranging from Marcus Garvey to like FDR praising it uh, for being like a third way regime that could offer an alternative to um, communism, capitalism and other forms of authoritarianism that were popping up across um, Europe. But then whenever... Italy firmly allied itself with Germany. That completely changed. Yeah, well, there were Zionists that were wanted to, an alliance with with a Third Reich as well. There were Zionists that actually tried that actually met with Nazi leaders and said, "Hey, you don't want the Jews? Fine, just send them to us." You know, well, fascist Italy in its early period was it sort of presented itself as a pan nationalist movement. For instance, early on, as you were saying. Mussolini sought out alliances with African nationalist leaders, with Arabs, you know, with people of different. I, I'm not sure about the relationship between fascist Italy and Zionism, but it didn't make sense. I mean, what you're saying makes sense uh, because it would have been uh, keeping with the, the fascist paradigm early in its, its history. Yeah, I mean, but but Zionism really is not that much different from fascism and national socialism. It's a it's a an ethno nationalist you know, essentially supremacist movement. You know, I mean, it's it's a type of Jewish revanchism and expansionism based on the creation of an ethno-state that privileges what's believed to be an indigenous religion and things like that. So it makes perfect sense that Zionists, at least some of them, would have felt some commonality with fascist Italy or even with Third Reich. Yeah, I think Paul Gottfried mentioned this, uh, the fascist Italy. And I, if I am not mistaken... There is a article by at in Heretz where the, it exposes that relationship. It's, a, it's actually a very interesting historical factoid that's overlooked. The article is entitled "When Jews Praised Mussolini and Supported Nazis Meet Israel's First Fascist." Just for reference. Now, I think we've hit the Israel topic pretty comprehensively let's talk about russia ukraine it seems like that topic just fell off the map in terms of like the political discourse nobody is really talking about it from based on what you've been able to study keith on this conflict where do you think things are going at the moment yeah well i mean i think to really get a uh, an overview of where that's headed we, we need to understand the full backstory of course The essence of the conflict is a conflict between Russian nationalism and uh, Western or Atlantic, particularly American, globalism. You know, as we know, in the post-Cold War period, 
uh, the United States developed a doctrine called full spectrum dominance. It was crafted by uh, Paul Wolfowitz. He was a leading neocon and um, Pentagon official back in the early 90s. He was later one of the architects of the Iraq War in the early 2000s. Uh, but the idea is that no other major power would be allowed to exist anywhere on Earth. Uh, that's what it amounts to. Of course, the Russians obviously aren't, aren't happy with this idea. And what Ru and Russia has tried to do uh, in the Putin era over the last 20 years is not only rebuild itself economically uh, from the condition it was in in the 1990s, but also uh, reestablish itself as a major uh, Eurasian military power. Uh, Putin is quoted as saying that, uh, you know, one of history's great tragedies was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And what he meant by that is the fact that the Soviet uh, Union, uh, that, well, Russia lost all of the territory associated with the Soviet Union. You know, Putin is not a communist. Uh, he's a Russian nationalist. I would add, um, just to give some context, um, he was also expressed a lot of... Um Anxiety with the fact that a good deal of ethnic Russians were left over in many of these Soviet administrative districts, all the way from like eastern Ukraine to northern Kazakhstan. And that was like one of the reasons why he believed that that the collapse of the Soviet Union was like a tragedy in geopolitical and even ethnic terms as well. And this is like a precursor to a lot of these ethnic struggles that would kick off in the last decade. But yeah, continue. Well, traditional Russian po foreign policy, going back all the way to the Tsarist era, has always been about trying to maintain a large buffer zone around the Russian homeland because Russia has no natural defenses. Uh, you know, it's not like the United States that's surrounded by huge oceans or, you know, a country somewhere that has, you know, a mountain range around it or something like that. You know, Russia, it does not have any natural defenses. So they've always wanted to have a large buffer zone, uh, in addition to the view that you know, ethnic Russians likely belong under the Russian umbrella. So that's been the source of the conflict between Russia and some of the border states in the post-Soviet era. And Ukraine in particular, there are, there are provinces in eastern Ukraine that are um, predominantly Russian, and the, the Russians view that as part of their you know, historic ancestral territory or whatever. Uh, but I think a more serious issue for the Russians when it comes to Ukraine was their fear that Ukraine was going to be joining NATO. Yeah, that's my opinion as well. I think the ethnic is more like a secondary tertiary fear. Well, I mean, to put that in perspective, we have to remember how the United States reacted to uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yep. When it was believed that Russia was putting nuclear missiles in Cuba, Ukraine is, is Cuba to the Russians. Uh, you know, the idea that Ukraine would become part of a continental military alliance led by the United States was unacceptable to Russia from a, uh, a geopolitical and national security perspective. I mean, it's no different than, let's say, in the Soviet era, if Canada had tried to join the Warsaw Pact or something. I mean, it, it's, you know, the United States would not have found that acceptable either. So that's really the root of the conflict. It's American globalism versus Russian nationalism uh, with uh, the, you know, the fear of, of uh, Ukraine joining NATO that's really motivating Russia's actions in Ukraine. Now, when, when the war started in Ukraine, I thought that probably what it would, would happen is that they, it would eventually fight to, to some kind of standstill. And that seems to be what's happening. 
I, I thought that this ultimate settlement would be that, you know, I, I mean, the war could continue to go on for years. It's certainly possible that Ukraine could turn out like to be the Iraq of Russia, you know, Russia's Iraq or something. Uh, you know, they had their war in Afghanistan. We had our war in Afghanistan. You know, we had our war in Iraq and they may, you know, Ukraine may be their Iraq, Iraq war for all I know. But I do think that ultimately what the settlement will probably be, I mean, even if it's not a formal settlement, the de facto settlement will be that Ukraine will simply be the new East-West Germany, just like in the Cold War, um, you had the, you know, Germany was pretty much split down the middle, or, well, well, slightly to the, to the east, but East Germany was considered, uh, was a Soviet satellite state. It was part of the Warsaw Pact. West Germany was uh, uh, part of the NATO alliance uh, with U.S. troops stationed there. Uh, and I thought that uh, Ukraine would probably go in a similar direction, where the uh, new Iron Curtain would be drawn somewhere in eastern Ukraine. Now, exactly where, I don't know. John Mearsheimer, uh, who's a, a leading expert on international relations from a realist perspective, he predicts that Russia will probably eventually take about 40% of Ukrainian territory. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Um, I, I do think that the Western will to continue to support Ukraine seems to be diminishing. And I think that's largely due to public opinion. Uh, Western elites, particularly the Americans and the British, but even to some degree the Germans and, and Italians and French, all seem to be pretty uh, zealous to continue to support Ukraine against Russia. And obviously the, the Eastern European countries are, the Baltic countries and Poland and all of that. But um, the, the general public throughout the West, I think, seems to be tiring of that particular war. And when, in the United States, you know, whenever we send these you know, uh, blank checks to the, the, uh, the Zelensky government in Ukraine, uh, that's not very popular. Uh, so it may be, and now, and now that the war in Gaza is going on, you know, that's become the focus of American foreign policy at the present time. Uh, and of course, there's also, you know, that may be expanding. Now we've got Yemen, we've got Lebanon and all of that. But without, you know, being too bold in, in my predictions, I would guess that at some point, the, at least on an informal level, Eastern Ukraine or Central Ukraine is simply going to be the new Iron Curtain. You know, it, they may not mark off the territory perfectly like the DMZ and in and, and Korea or something, but it'll be something similar to that, where you basically have the Russian side and the Western side. Do you think that whatever is like left of Ukraine, like the Western rump state, will be like incorporated directly into NATO and or the European Union? Mm, that's hard to say. I suspect not. I suspect that. Western policymakers may be concerned that that would be too provocative an act, although that hasn't stopped them in the past. So, so who knows? But it, 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 that could happen. But it also, I think, is probably more likely that West Ukraine will simply be like South Korea. You know, South Korea isn't formally part of a, of a of NATO or anything comparable to that in the Pacific, even though there are American troops there. Uh, and I think that probably. Uh, West Ukraine will be something similar eventually. You know, you, you know there there may be uh, a, a de facto DMZ in the in the central or eastern Ukraine. The uh, you know the pro the western region may continue to be aligned with the West. You know the, the Ukrainian West Ukraine will have its own army. 
there there may eventually be NATO troops there as well. That may be a possibility. That may be part of the how the conflict is resolved eventually. It may be that there's not uh, a formal uh, entry by Ukraine into West Ukraine into NATO, but it may be that troops are are there from NATO or stationed there. You know that that could always happen. You know, there's any number of possible scenarios, and like I said, I wouldn't want to be too bold in my predictions, but I do think that that's going to be the gist of it. I mean. You know, Ukraine is going to be the new East-West Germany of the new North-South Korea. Do you think that there is potential for future conflicts further down the line, though, like now that, like, Finland is part of NATO and potentially Sweden as well? I do, because obviously the NATO countries have their mutual defense compact. So if anything ever happens to one of those countries, all of the others are bound to come to their aid. Uh, and incidentally, that's true of the EU as well. The EU has a mutual defense compact between its individual members, and about two-thirds of EU countries are also NATO countries. So the entire EU is basically under the NATO umbrella by default because of this interlocking system of defense treaties. But yeah, I, I think that, that that's going to be a really tense region. I think it's going to be like the old Iron Curtain. You know, you're going to have the you know a militarized West and a militarized East, and this you know this tense uh, uh, DMZ uh, running through Ukraine. I think that uh, it's quite likely uh, the Europeans will escalate uh, their own military buildup or military presence in, in the future. Um, you know, I, like I, like you said, they uh, we, see, we see some countries that have a historically somewhat pacifistic approach to their own foreign policy, like Sweden now trying to come into NATO as, uh, as well. Uh, and of course, the Finns have engaged in battle with the uh, Russians in the past. So that's there's nothing new there. Uh, but I think that region is going to be a fairly tense region. But I, those countries, though, some of those uh, Scandinavian and, and Baltic and Eastern European countries, I think they could end up being kind of like the Pacific Rim in the sense that, you know, you've got Japan, you've got South Korea, uh, Taiwan is obviously a source of conflict, but you've also got uh, the Philippines and you've got um, Singapore and, and Malaysia. And while there's conflict between some of those countries and China, uh, they, they still manage to maintain uh, their own independence and they're still you know, under the de facto U.S. umbrella as well. So I think that's probably the future of, of most of those countries. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you in that respect. Now, with China, it seems that because of Russia, Ukraine, and the Israel conflict, that the U.S. is not as aggressively pursuing its containment policy against it. Or I could be wrong. What has been your read in terms of like U.S. policy towards China and light of like the recent geopolitical flare-ups of the past year or so? Well, for a time, it looked like the United States was to some degree retreating from the Middle East and becoming more focused on China. For example, the Abraham Accords, the way I interpreted the Abraham Accords was that it was largely an effort to sort of farm out or out outsource some of the functions of the United States to client states in the region, like Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states and Israel and so forth. And in fact, even even the Syrian war, I saw the United States to some degree trying to outsource that to Turkey. And then, of course, the um, uh, and at the time, China seemed to be the real focus. Uh, then the war in Ukraine started. 
Uh, and then the war in Israel started. And it looks like to me the United States has gone back once again to focusing on the Middle East, uh, you know, like we were doing during the war on terrorism era. And along the way, uh, the focus on, on Ukraine and Taiwan seems to have fallen by the wayside. I mean, relatively speaking, obviously, it's still an issue. We're still supporting uh, Ukraine. We're still supporting Taiwan. But it doesn't seem to be as much of a focus, which I think works to very much to the advantage of the, the Eastern powers, to the, the BRICS alliance, because the, if the United States is distracted in the Middle East, that gives them a lot more, uh, that gives Russia and China a lot more uh, international maneuverability, you know, and, and as if, you know, as opposed to if, you know, the uh, Pacific uh, power or, uh, or, or Eastern European conflicts were the central focus of U.S. foreign policy. So I think, you know, when it comes to the war in Israel, I think Russia and China are benefiting from that. I would largely agree as well with that. Yes, it does keep attention away from China when it's become clear that there was a concerted effort to actually fully pivot to Asia, but now things are definitely up in the air. Yeah, and it's also given uh, the Eastern powers, uh, I, I guess you could say, uh, an advantage in the court of world opinion, because now with what's going on in Gaza, you see Russia and China and Turkey and, and some of these other places speaking up on behalf of the Palestinians. Uh, you know, you, you have uh, China in the UN, you know, uh, uh, lambasting the Israeli ambassador. Uh, you have Turkey, uh, you know, you have Erdogan uh, giving a fiery speech on behalf of the Palestinians. You have uh, Putin coming out and, and condemning the Israelis for the, the massacre of children. Uh, and of course, from a you know, geopolitical uh, perspective in terms of safe, soft power and diplomatic relations, that's giving the Eastern powers a great deal of, uh, of advantages as well in terms of world opinion. I mean, world opinion is certainly behind uh, you know, the Palestinians, uh, and, and the United States is certainly going against the tides of world opinion. Unquestionably. Oh, actually, I forgot to touch upon this. Where do you think, in respect with respect to Israel, public opinion is going to head in the U.S. in the decades to come? Do you think that um, Americans will become more lukewarm with respect to Israel, or do you believe that a fundamental change will occur that will translate into comprehensive restructuring of the U.S.'s relationship with Israel? Well, I think some of that is largely generational. Poll after poll shows that younger people have far less sympathy for Israel than older people. And that's true of young American Jews as well, as well as non-Jews. Uh, also, one of the most zealously pro-Israel constituencies in the United States is not the Jewish community, but the evangelical Christian Zionist community. Uh, and the evidence shows that evangelical Christianity is declining in popularity overall in the United States, or at least that particular kind of evangelicalism is declining. Also, people who are minorities, who are not of European ancestry, tend to be more sympathetic to Israel. Uh, you know, certainly um, African-Americans, obviously Arab-Americans, obviously Muslim-Americans. So as the non-white population grows in number, there will likely be more sympathy for Israel there as well. 
I mean, I mean, uh, sympathy for the Palestinians as well. So uh, it's going to be increasingly more difficult for the government to sell its pro-Israel policies to the general public as we see this generational and cultural and, and uh, demographic changeover. Uh, now, how that's going to affect policy, I don't really know. But I do think it's going to be more difficult for the current uh, policy to be sustainable. You know, one, one thing about Israel is that Israel, you know, Israel to a large degree maintains its status with the United States by playing the Holocaust card. You know, I mean, like if you, particularly when you talk to any older people in the United States and you say something negative about Israel, they say, yeah, but the Holocaust, you know, or, or World War II and the Third Reich. As that becomes a more distant memory, um, I think that that will be less of a, you know, that will be less of a, a less powerful rhetorical weapon. Um, you know, just like, uh, you know, the Armenian genocide, you know, we, well, a lot of people know that it happened, uh, but we don't generally think of Armenian people as needing any special recognition or rights or anything because something awful happened to them in the past. You know, nowadays when people think of the Armenians, they probably just think of the Cardassians, you know. And so I think that, you know, to some degree, I think it'll be the same way with Israel in the future. You know, I think in the future, uh, people will increasingly see Israel as something that's not really relevant to their own worldview or their own lives. Uh, also, Israel will increasingly be seen as something that's antithetical to what people think of as Western values, you know, as, as ideas like, say, multiculturalism and liberalism and all of these things become more pervasive, um, which they seem to be uh, in, in Western societies, the idea of an ethno-supremacist religious state, you know, in Israel is not going to be that palatable to uh, future generations. 100% agreed. That's where I think things are heading in that respect. And just to take things a bit more domestically, what do you think of like the, the most recent developments by the Colorado State Supreme Court to take Donald Trump off uh, the ballot in the 2024 presidential election. I tend to think that this more or less, in my opinion, is like the nail in the coffin in terms of any attempt to prevent Trump from receiving the Republican nomination. I think this guarantees his nomination more or less. Uh, I, I, that was already set in stone, in my view, from before, but I think this just like further emphasizes that. Well, the Democratic Party ultimately has as its goal the creation of a one-party state. Uh, that's obvious when you see all of the things that the Democratic Party does and all of the things that they say. For instance, uh, the Democratic Party wants to eliminate the Electoral College. The Democratic Party wants to eventually add more states to the United States, like uh, making D.C. and Puerto Rico in, into states, knowing that those would most likely be Democratic states in, in general elections. The United States wants to uh, it, more population groups to immigrate into the United States that are more likely to be Democrats. And But even beyond demographic issues, we see that the, the Democratic Party is refusing to hold primaries. Uh, they're essentially ignoring opposition candidates within their own party. They're ignoring Shane Kyogre. They're ignoring Marianne Williamson. They're ignoring Dean Phillips. They ignored Bobby Kennedy when he was still running as a Democrat. 
Uh, they're also uh, working uh, to undermine the ability of minor parties, these third parties like the Greens and Libertarians and all that to have ballot access. Uh, during the uh, 2020 election, they uh, during the debates, they would do things like try to cut off the microphones of some of the candidates they didn't want, like Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard. And then after Bernie Sanders won the uh, primary in, in Nevada, uh, Obama himself intervened. Uh, and asked the uh, all the other House candidates, Democratic in-House candidates like Pete Buttigieg and all of those people, uh, and asked them to to step back and and, and basically uh, let Joe Biden win in South Carolina, so he would be guaranteed the nomination. So they have a very elaborate process for trying to essentially rig uh, the the uh, primary system and the nominating process in in favor of the candidates they want. I mean, the Democrats function essentially is monarchists. They they think that uh, the leadership should be determined on the basis of seniority and succession. You know, uh, so if it was Hillary's turn last time, well, it's Joe's turn next time and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, or, or they have anointed candidates that the DNC wants, like, like uh, say, Kamala Harris or someone like that. And they go out of their way to prevent real competition in the primaries, to prevent third parties and independent candidates from running. And now they've also started attacking the major opposition party. You know, they're going after Donald Trump with lawfare with all of these different uh, indictments, uh, all these different jurisdictions. And now they're trying to have him removed from the ballot uh, in individual states as well. So the sum total of everything that the Democratic Party advocates for and everything they do makes it clear that what they want is a one-party state. They, they want the Democrats to be like the CCP or like the old institutional program party in Mexico that was a one-party state that ruled Mexico for something like 70 years. Uh, I mean, they might formally allow other parties to exist just as token opposition parties. So it's clear that that's what the real goal is. Um, you know, irrespective of what you think of the actual decision in Colorado, what I think is more important is the wider motivations behind that. 100%. That's how I think things will shape up with the Democratic Party because they are playing for for keeps in terms of they're, they're pursuing a one-party type solution, whether it's like importing a new electorate to rigging the electoral game in their favor. They're clearly playing for that. Now, on the Trump side of things, why do you think that he's going to just coast as the nominee for the GOP in 2024, what has prevented the likes of not just like the neocons like Nikki Haley, but also people like Ron DeSantis, who was previously viewed as his most credible challenger of like potentially like pulling off an upset in the primaries against him? Well, Trump obviously has the advantage of being the former president. Uh, he has the advantage of being very popular with the Republican base. Many Republicans believe that he uh, actually won the last election. Now, whether you agree with that or not, you know, that's not really relevant to how people perceive that. So I think that's a big part of it. Uh, also, I think just as important, the challengers to Donald Trump in the Republican primaries just aren't very impressive. The uh, Nikki Haley, for example, Nikki Haley is an old school George W. Bush era neocon. In fact, when she's running, uh, when she is campaigning, she sounds more like she's running for the board of directors of Raytheon than running for president. You know, so I, that, that's that type of republicanism or conservatism or whatever. It's just not popular nowadays. Uh, 
you know, what Donald Trump has done is he's really gone out, maybe not consciously, but he's had the effect of reviving a lot of Republican traditions that existed really prior to the Reagan era. Like if you look at the kinds of political viewpoints and policy preferences and demographic sectors and a lot of other things that go into the Trump phenomena, you see that a lot of the these, these older Republican traditions like the Eisenhower, you know, populist model, you know, the Eisenhower, Nixon, Nelson Rockefeller populist type of Republicanism, as well as the old school, you know, pre-war World War II era Main Street conservatism like uh, Herbert Hoover and, and Calvin Coolidge, Warren G. Harding. Um, you see the the uh, more uh, the the Taft, the Robert Taft tradition. It's more skeptical of uh, military interventionism. You know, a lot of these older Republican traditions have been revived, uh, largely due to the influence of Donald Trump, along with populism and you know paleo conservatism and and, and old school uh, trade protectionism. Uh, so that's really where, you know, people who are more rightward leaning, that's really where their thinking is now. And Nikki Haley is more from the old order. You know, she's she's a George W. Bush Republican. Um, as for uh, some of the other candidates, you know, you know I mean, they're just uh, one is Chris Christie. And, and he's obviously there just to antagonize Donald Trump. He doesn't even seem like a, a serious candidate. Um, I think politically, he would, he's more of a George H.W. Bush Republican than a George W. Bush Republican. But that's largely irrelevant because that that you know that point of view was just not popular among Republicans anymore. Ron DeSantis, I think the problem he has is he's just not a very good campaigner. You know, he's not a good speaker. He's not very charismatic. He doesn't come across as particularly masculine. He talks with something of a lisp. Uh, you know, he's sort of soft spoken. Has a high pitched voice. He's a short guy, which is where he wears why he wears platform boots. There's actually a lot of sociological research that shows that uh, candidates who are tall do much better in elections on a on a general level than short candidates. Uh, so you know, candidates need to present themselves as being tall as much as possible um, if they, I guess, if they want to be competitive. Yeah, that's not rational, of course, but that's just how people perceive things. So you know, DeSantis doesn't come across as as presidential. Also, I think there was some degree DeSantis was something of a decoy. I think he, a lot of his backers sort of planted him in the in Republican circles or in the primaries or whatever as a supposed decoy from Trump. I think a lot of the Republican Party leadership, the donor class and all that, looked at it like, well, we've got this DeSantis guy. You know, He can run as sort of a conservative populist who's against all this woke stuff. You know, he takes on Disney and he takes on the transgender people and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they, they were hoping he would be a deflection from Trump, that he could draw from Trump and undermine Trump in the process. But I, it doesn't seem to be happening. And I think, you know, Tr DeSantis just doesn't have the, the personality for that. He doesn't really come across as sincere. You know, he's, he's flipped his position on, on a number of things a number of times. For example, the COVID restrictions was a good example. Uh, and I think a lot of people just view him as business as usual. You know, I mean, people, uh, Republican voters who, who support Trump, they like the fact that Trump is viewed as a troublemaker by the wider political establishment. That's part of his appeal. I actually think that all of these indictments that have been brought against Trump, you know, these you know, 91 felony charges in five jurisdictions or something like that, that seems to have actually increased his popularity. 
Um, and I think the reason for it is a lot of people look at it like, well, somebody that's that hated by the establishment couldn't be all bad. And in fact, one thing that's particularly interesting is how well Trump is now doing with constituencies outside the traditional Republican constituencies. Like you're seeing more and more blacks uh, becoming interested or at least somewhat sympathetic to Trump. You're seeing more young people becoming more sympathetic to Trump. You're seeing more Hispanic people becoming sympathetic to Trump. And I think that's the reason why. I think a lot of people from across the cultural mm -hmm. spectrum, demographic spectrum, look at it like, you know, the, the, the establishment obviously hates this guy, so there must be something good about it. Everything you said about DeSantis, um, I, I actually agree with it. The, the guy is just like such a low energy candidate. I also think, too, he did not politically uh, position himself well on some foreign policy issues. Like his total backtracking on Ukraine and this just overall t trying to like have one foot in like populist circles and then have another foot in neocon adjacent circles, which is not doing him any favors. If anything, he should have gone more of like the Vivek Ramaswamy route where he would just double down on pro-Trump talking points and all of that, or even like gone like more of a Ron Paul route, but that's here nor there. What do you make of this speculation though, that Trump will be compelled to make a deal with the devil if he receives the nomination and have to nominate like a neocon like Nikki Haley or just any other like insert neocon VP presidential pick? I'd be surprised if that happened. I don't think it's an impossibility, but I think Trump now has had such a bitter, bitter falling out with the political establishment, I think that he's going to probably surround himself with people that are somewhat different than what he did during his first term. Like if you look at a lot of the people that he selected, you know, well, for example, he some he selected Mike Pence as his running mate. You know, he's an old school George W. Bush era conservative, you know, Republican. And, you know, a lot of the people that Trump brought into his administration, you know, they were leftovers from the Bush era or the the Bush senior era, you know, you had guys like Elliot Abrams and William Barr and John Bolton and, and Mike Pompeo and characters like that. I tend to think that next time around, Trump is probably going to fill his cabinet and his general staff with more of radical is the term, but um, people that are more removed from the you know, this traditional Republican establishment, probably including his running mate. Now, I have no idea who his running mate is going to be. I think it could be any number of people. Um, but uh, I, I, and I do think, though, that a, tr a Trump administration in the future is probably going to have a somewhat different set of personnel than what we saw before. I think because I think Trump's main uh, motivation when he gets reelected is going to be to you know, wage war on the deep state that's been waging war up against him. You know, he's out for revenge. I mean, what, what was he said? What was it he said in a speech? I, I'll be your retribution or something like that. And I think he's, he means that. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I predict that if Trump gets reelected, there's going to be, you know, an, an intra-governmental civil war going on, you know, an intra-ruling class civil war. I mean, maybe not a literal civil war, like shooting at each other. But, it's, you know, I think Trump's gonna, probably going to, um, his staff, his a future administration with more hardcore people than before, and I think there's going to be a more you know, direct attack on you know the, the sectors within the government, the wider elite uh, that that Trump is in conflict with. 
Yeah, as far as VP candidates, who knows? I mean, if it could be uh, some people say Christy Nome may be his uh, VP. You know, he, she's popular among the uh, anti-lockdown people. Although that was going on four years ago now, so you know that maybe that's becoming more of a distant memory. Uh, you know, she's also physically attractive, so that may be a you know a plus. Um, um, it's, it's possible Vivek could be his running mate. That's another possibility. Uh, you know, I, I've even heard uh, speculation that somebody like Tulsi Gabbard could be uh, his, his running mate. So, you know, who knows? One thing about Trump is that he's something of a wild card. He's somewhat unpredictable. So you never really know what he's going to do. If we're operating under the assumption that Trump is going to uh, surround himself with more anti-establishment types in a hypothetical second administration, what do you think his foreign policy will look like? Well... John Mearsheimer predicts, and I think correctly, that Trump will probably try to essentially disband, uh, disband NATO. Uh, and for that reason, there was actually uh, legislation that was that the Senate was trying to pass recently that would prevent a president from pulling out of NATO. I think that that was a bipartisan legislation. I think Tim Kaine and I forget who else, a Republican, were co-sponsors of that. But I do think that Trump is probably going to be a lot less oriented towards European uh, allies than certainly than Biden has been. I mean, Trump was not big on NATO uh, when he was president before, and it's probably going to be even less so this time around. Um, the the thing about the uh, Democrats is that the Democrats represent the wing of the establishment that are basically Europhiles, like the um, the, at the upper levels of those who back the Democratic Party or the Northeastern Establishment, what is often called the Northeastern Establishment. And the Northeastern Establishment are basically elite people from the Northeastern region who, uh, you know, they're, they, a lot of them come from old money families from American history. And some of them trace their ancestry to, to European elites. And they see themselves as the American equivalent of European royalty and European aristocracy and all that. Um, so uh, the, the Democrats are Europhiles, uh, and that's one of the reasons why they're so big on, on NATO and, and so uh, Russophobic. The Republicans tend to represent the Sun Belt. You know, they tend to represent the, uh, um, you know, the, the South, the Southwest, the Midwest, the West, and that sector tends to be a lot less Europhilic. They now they do tend to be more oriented towards the Middle East. You know, you have oil interests in the Middle East. You have pro-Israel interests, obviously. They also tend to be more anti-China. I think China is more of a threat uh, than Russia. Uh, but I do think that Trump will probably try to undermine NATO if he gets reelected. You know, I think he, you know, he he will certainly neglect NATO, uh, and he will not be a, a big advocate of, of funding or building up NATO, and that has implications. For the uh, Ukraine war, you know, I don't see Trump as being someone that's that enthusiastic about the war in Ukraine and continuing that. Now, Trump was a lot more hawkish on Russia than than what is commonly believed. Like, you know, you have people from the left who think Trump was a Russian puppet, but that's nonsense. Yeah, I was going to mention that because actually turned out to be quite hawkish on Russia. And if I recall correctly, John Mearsheimer thinks that. Trump could revert to that hawkishness, but what, what do you think in general? Well, I think on Russia, 
Trump was hawk, Trump's administration was hawkish on Russia in the sense that they unilaterally abrogated the INF treaty that uh, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev put together back in 1987. But uh, I think to some degree, though, uh, as we were talking about before, Trump's policies towards Europe and NATO and towards Russia as well will largely be dependent on what kind of people he has around him uh, as far as his staff and, and uh, administration. Uh, you know, he last time, as we were saying, he brought in a lot of Republican establishment people. He brought in a lot of neocons. Uh, so a lot of U.S. foreign policy was business as usual, uh, including U.S.-Russia relations. Uh, if he brings in somebody like, say, Steve Bannon to be chief of staff or, you know, he, he's got uh, people like, uh, you know, Stephen Miller. He's been uh, announced as a possible candidate for attorney general. Uh, I don't really see that circle being very hawkish on Russia. You know, I think that I see them being more like more um, likely to try to wind down U.S. involvement in NATO, sort of uh, move away from NATO. They may not dismantle it entirely, but just uh, neglect it uh, and perhaps try to work more towards cutting some kind of deal with Russia or at least not pursuing the uh, Ukraine war with the maximum degree of enthusiasm that we've seen the Biden administration uh, pursuing it. So that would be my guess, but I think it's going to depend on who's in his administration. Now, if he brings in a lot of John Bolton's and people like that, and Mike Pompeo's and, and Elliot Abrams and, and, and folks like that, then, then, it, then it might just be business as usual with Russia. That's my vague impression as well, that it's very likely the product of that. It was very likely the product of personnel is policy, and that because he had so many neocon and neocon-adjacent people staffed in his administration, Trump really could not realize his so-called America First vision on foreign policy. Well, one thing that's particularly important, while we're talking about a Trump foreign policy, the U.S. relationship with Israel is going to be in, impacted by a Trump presidency uh, because on one hand, Trump is very pro-Israel. He was as pro-Israel as any president we ever had. But the catch is he personally dislikes Benjamin Netanyahu. He greatly dislikes Benjamin Netanyahu on a personal level. And for Trump, personal relationships are everything in politics. You know, he puts personal relationships before policies. So I think it would be very interesting if Trump became president and he and Benjamin Netanyahu were not able to get along. Um, you know, even if they theoretically both uh, support the Gaza war or whatever, I, I think that that would have, uh, you know, th there could be a rift in U.S.-Israel relationship just based on, you know, conflicts between personalities, between Netanyahu, assuming Netanyahu is still in power then, uh, and, and Trump. Uh, I, that's something I haven't heard much discussion of in foreign policy circles, but I do think that that's really interesting because you know Trump uh, has publicly criticized Netanyahu for not supporting him when he challenged the uh, election results uh, of 2020. Uh, when the, the 7th happened, he attacked Netanyahu as being incompetent for allowing it to happen on his watch. You know, so I mean, you know, Netanyahu hasn't taken count kindly to that. Uh, so I, I see conflict happening between those two guys if they you know if if they're both in power at the same time. That is a very interesting point, and I would wind things back a bit and let's take a trip down memory lane. If I'm not mistaken, during the campaign trail, Trump took 
2015 or 2016, I forget, he took a rather neutral position on the Israel-Palestinian conflict that made the whole establishment go wild. And I've heard rumors that that may have been one of the catalysts of the GOP trying to get these really pro-Zionist donors to have like a sit down with Trump to tell him like, this is how things go around here. And then he reversed course in time. But I do think he does have some instincts residually to not be that fanatically pro-Zionist, especially if he starts getting a more dovishly staffed team of people around him. And you add in the personal thing, because I think that's actually really important because for Trump, a lot of policy is personal. He's, he doesn't, he's not an ideological reductionist in terms of his political behavior. Yeah, well, I think a lot of Trump's uh, policies in the Middle East were also heavily influenced by Jared Kushner. So a big part of that is going to be whether Jared comes back or not. I've heard that uh, Trump's not planning on having Jared uh, as part of his uh, future administration if he gets reelected. So it's quite possible that if Jared is not invited back or sidelined or whatever, that uh, a Trump may not be as uh, quite as pro-Israel as he was under uh, you know before. Uh, that's certainly a possibility. But you know, like you were saying, uh, you know, relate, personal relationships are everything to Trump, and I think that his you know, you, I mean, Trump definitely has a big ego, and obviously Benjamin Netanyahu has a big ego, and you put those two guys together, there's going to be a clash. So I don't. I don't really see Netanyahu and Trump working to work together very well. Yeah, no doubt. Hey, man, I think this is a good place to put a bookmark in the conversation, but I thoroughly enjoyed it, Keith. Before we close things out, please let my audience know where they can follow your latest work. Uh, well, you can go to attackthesystem.com. Uh, you know, every day we have new articles and news items and things like that, commentary that are posted there. And you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and MeWe. Uh, you can actually access my social media from the homepage of, uh, of Attack the System as well. Fantastic. Well, everyone, thank you again for your generous attention. And with that, El Nino has spoken.